Welcome back to the Griffin Review. I'm your host, Grante, and with me is our other chief analyst, Matt. And what I'm going to be doing today is asking him a bit of a lightning round to give us some context and definition of popular terms that we're going to see in the media in context of some questions. So, Matt, welcome to the show. It's always good to be here. You've been doing a lot of work with network security recently. I have been. I've been working on getting some cybersecurity certification under my belt, but also considering where the current cyber attacks are hitting throughout the world, yeah. specifically the new federal agencies that are being hit, I think it's just a really important skill to have as a part of any company. It's a really unique part of like the world that we're in of, this is how attacks happen now. Mm -hmm. It's not really out there on the battlefield. These are subvert, they're digital. It's hard to, it's hard to respond to. It's, it's hard to respond to, and I also think it has a much larger area of effect. If you can change the minds of the country, the minds of the people in the country, you can dictate policy decisions accordingly. And that's the real strength of, of cybersecurity vulnerabilities, is just the precipitous effect that it has. Wow, yeah, deep. <laughs> well, I don't think cybersecurity is technically high on the list of topics today, but we're going to go through this lightning round, and I'm giving you 90 seconds per question, right. okay? So we got 90 <laughs> seconds on the clock, which I'll start at the end of the question, and then I'll give the answer over to you. So first, explain the power of the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and analyze where it's being leveraged currently. Go. The Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia is, in essence, a sovereign wealth fund, but it's designed for a specific purpose. Unlike most sovereign wealth funds that aggrandize the power of the people through infrastructure or even direct cash transfer, like you would see in Alaska, in Saudi Arabia, the model is to aggrandize the name of Saudi Arabia and the Saudi family, or the family of Saud. Now, this is important because, unlike every other sovereign wealth fund, the money isn't actually hitting the people in qualitative ways for education, healthcare, housing, any true public projects, but the Saudi Arabian government will try to use this as a means of gaining soft power. Now they'll use this as leverage in the region, also globally, but it's why they'll pay somebody like Ronaldo an obscene amount of money to play for them, because they think, right or wrong, that they will get far more out of Ronaldo playing soccer for them than they would a hospital in some distant village. which. Whether that's true or not, we will see. Intriguing. <laughs> because they have a ton of money. It's all like oil money or something. But, I mean, they can't keep running on this oil business forever. I think that's why they're putting in massive arenas. And what's that big cube called? That Have you seen that? I'm, I gotta remember what the name of that is, but we'll put it in the graphics in the show notes. I, I cannot remember the name of that cube either, but it's an abomination. It's It has no purpose. It's also very space inefficient. It's energy inefficient. It's just, it's just an eyesore. It's like the wall. Do you see the thing about the wall that they're making? Yeah, just it's supposed to be a giant mirror too. But, but why? Who asked for this? To get the views. <laughs> Gotta get the camera on it. But that's my point. It doesn't necessarily have any practical value. It's all about soft power hegemony and getting the name of this new hip new place out there. Saudi Arabia is not necessarily associated with development and modernity and progressiveness, but... Quite the opposite, actually, I yeah, believe. One, one might say. But <laughs> well, I, it's just, it's trying to break into that tech field that they think they can. Yeah. 
I'm with it. Well, we're going to jump into the next question because we went off track on that, <laughs> that last one. That's okay. That's what this show is for. We're going to jump around the globe a little bit. Okay. And this is, what is a war of attrition? And is it the short-term future of the Ukraine and Russia crisis right now, or do you think somebody is going to make a move over the summer? So a war of attrition, as we understand it, is best exemplified in the Fabian strategy during the Second Punic War, wherein Fabius decided that he couldn't beat Hannibal in open battle. Instead, he would simply poison the wells around Hannibal and make it so where Hannibal would have to constantly move his armies around and never siege one location for too long. Now, why I bring this up is because a war of attrition is essentially about outlasting your opponent. You're not going to beat them in the field properly. You're going to grind them down. In the situation of Ukraine, the Ukrainians and Russians both think they have the winning side on a war of aggression. The Ukrainians think eventually the Russians will be pushed out of Ukraine because their losses will become insurmountable. And the Russians think the Ukrainians can't suffer the manpower losses that they suffer on a day-to-day -day basis. What this means for the summer offensive is that both sides are unlikely to make massive progress in one way or another because a risky play would jeopardize both of their positions. Rather, they'll just grind the gears in the middle of a muddy swamp that is currently southern Ukraine. Wow, yeah. I mean, I'm going to throw on top of that. I mean, I'm looking at Wall Street Journal app right now, and top headline for world news, Russia's big economic problem, not enough workers. And I don't, this isn't a surprise to me. Like, this isn't news. This could have been easily deduced. I could have told you this headline would appear at about this time right. a year ago. And I bet that you could have predicted that as well. But the fact of the matter is, is we're seeing that war of attrition in the headlines. Well, we've actually talked about demographics before in relation to both Russia and Ukraine on this channel before with uh, mm -hmm. with our previous Griffin reviews. I'm just throwing Often. that out there. <laughs> you can always look back at our previous videos for reference. But I think the important takeaway is that both sides are settling in for a long conflict. And while I am loath to bet against Ukraine due to my personal instincts, I am also loath to bet against Russia given the history of prolonged conflict mm. with Russian involvement. But usually, at some point, the sheer mass of bodies they throw against the wall tends to be the swaying mechanism. Yeah, and I mean, war analysts, historians have, I mean, we thought of that of kind of Russia, that's been their strategy. Is that, how can that continue in the 21st century when no longer strength of size of army doesn't matter, but the capabilities of the small operating unit, right? Well, I'm unsure that the size of the army doesn't matter. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian line is so long that even minor holes, minor chinks in the armor could lead to large-scale victories for one side or the other. So at some point, whenever you're no longer able to plug the holes on the front line, that's when you lose. That's where they come through, right there. And, and or, or your lines become spread too thin, and they're able to puncture every single location simultaneously. Mm. So the, the critical moment in a war of attrition are when one side is stretched too thin. That's the goal. Absolutely. And that's the chink, then you just dive in through the chink. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Well, that's the opinion of the Griffin reviewers here on that crisis. <laughs> Let's move on to question number three, shall we? Absolutely. What are, hmm, 
What are implications we could, should consider when reading a headline which announces synthetic embryos? Synthetic embryos of people, human beings. When we think about synthetic embryos, I think it's best to keep in your mind this idea, for better or worse, of designer babies. Because when it comes to biological advancements that are happening in your utero, the vast majority of these are focused on trying to assist that process to the best possible end. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways of looking at it. Either one, designer babies are something to be feared and terrified of moving forward because they will just be better than you or I at literally everything because they are genetically modified to that extent. Perhaps to the perhaps to the level of being like a different species, you know? Right. And I would say that in addition to that concept, the other way you can look at it is that designer babies are also perhaps a solution to abortion moving forward. You know, why would you even need abortions at some point if the whole process could happen outside of a woman's body? There's no need for abortion at that point. So I think there's a political aspect to it, but I think there's also a practical economic aspect. Well, on the practical economic side, it sounds like if you're saying that all, all systems, you know, being general about the process of a human giving birth, all systems are under control. There's really no need to have abortions because we don't have to have one start. We can control that now. Right. And we can even control things, I don't know, the philo philosophical implications we could fill an episode with. Absolutely. And while the philosophical explanations are something I would love to pontificate at length about, I also think that those are things that individuals have to make determinations of at the end of the day. So you, dear viewer, will decide one way or the other, regardless of my input, how you feel about these kinds of advancements. So let us know in the comments down below, what do you think? Yeah. All right. We'll hear from, I think we'll hear from them. The next thing we're going to talk about is some economics. So next question. Explain isolationist economics in context of the changes happening in the current global supply chain. In reference to the current global supply chain, isolationist economics boils down to trying to reduce the amount of supply chain vulnerabilities as much as possible. Now, this is important for any country that's trying to increase its local power and become a regional power relative to their neighbors. So, historically, countries that took advantage of these kinds of developments became the colonial superpowers that we recognized in the 19th and 20th centuries. That is because these colonial superpowers took advantage of the fact that their enemies were vulnerable in key locations, and they were not. So even though they weren't necessarily the strongest economies in every way, they had a little bit of everything. They were generalists rather than specialists. And when you are a generalist, you are far less exposed, mm -hmm. far less vulnerable mm -hmm. from the invasion of others. Yeah, because, I mean, if you can handle all your own internal production, you don't need to go outside. In fact, if you can be like America and have that surplus where you're supplying your neighbors at the same time, I mean, that's a call to, for an isolationist economy right there, right? Exactly, and that's why I think there's an argument, a viable argument, that the United States still has the vestiges of a colonial empire, mm. not in the same way as having actual colonies in the Gambia or South Africa. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. But it still has some colonial vestiges in the sense that the 
the United States is self-sufficient in every critical aspect, including energy to this day. Specifically food, energy, weaponry, yeah, the critical methods by which you control a population yeah. and control sovereignty. We can put some charts in the, yeah. in the video for this too. Absolutely, and also, what we've talked about before, demographics. The United States has incredibly stable demographic structure in comparison to every other developed nation. As such, the United States not being vulnerable in any particular way creates an opportunity to leverage its position with or against any other power on Earth. Yeah, that economic position is hard to beat, exactly. especially with the power of the U.S. dollar. Everybody else uses it, I mean currently, as their medium of exchange. Right. Yeah, that central position, it's hard to, it's hard to get around. Right, and the recent talks, if, if I may divert for a second, Do it. we've talked about BRICS a little bit before. Uh -huh. There's talk about a BRICS central currency. Now this is created, or the conversation around it was created by this, uh, shall we say, fervent socialist named Lula down in Brazil. And Lula's economic policy really comes down to uh, blind socialism at any cost. It's probably the best way to describe mm -hmm. his, his policy. It's not real policy. It's more of a populist referendum that doesn't have any real support in the international community. But his interest comes down to trying to avoid using the U.S. dollar as much as possible to create a debt-driven economy for Brazil, similar to what happened in China. What he forgets is that nobody wants Chinese currency. Everybody wants the American dollar because Chinese currency is, in the most technical sense, hot garbage. As such, the U.S. dollar will maintain its dominance regardless of what BRICS wants to do because there's no backing for BRICS currency beyond, oh, well, we just really want to run a debt-driven economy that's not dependent mm. on the dollar. So you're saying that there's actually, like, if we're talking about productivity, flat-out productivity-wise, there's a lot more actual, like, work and productivity being done in the exchanges around the American dollar than there are on the currencies of other nations. There's more actual work being done yeah. behind things involving the dollar. Well, every other currency is exchange is based on the dollar. So that, that's an important thing to remember in relation to why the dollar is winning against currencies like the euro, even after we accept a lot of foreign direct investment or take out massive loans in America during the coronavirus crisis. It's because the dollar is the standard. And regardless of whatever European stimulus packages take place, those are all being compared against the dollar. Intriguing. The, this, the, the way that the, there is a war on the dollar going well, on. It's, or I think that people would like to have a war on the dollar. And I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Not to get demonetized too soon. But yeah. it's it really comes down to whether you subscribe to the dollar's theory, the, the fact that American currency is going to maintain dominance based on the United States military leverage along with GDP, or you say that we'll take our, we'll take our luck on our own. That's what Turkey did, and the lira is basically useless at this point as, as a it's means in, of transaction. It's in the tank. It's, it, it's been in the tank for a few years, even after they've tried to transition to a gold standard, right? Even after they've tried to attach their currency to precious metals, it's still not a very, shall we say, sought-after currency, mm. which implies to me that American guns are worth more than actual gold and silver ever would be. Pound for pound? Pound for pound. 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 I mean, well, I mean, not pound for pound, because a pound of gold is going to be worth a lot more than a pound of iron, but... 
you know, in, in a, that I, iron can do things, you know, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's the difference. Well, Which one would you rather have if you had <laughs> only have one? Right. With one of them, you can have both. <laughs> and I think that's the point, is that the practical application of the American military has more strength behind it than the practical application of gold and silver for a lot of countries. Hmm. I'd agree, I'd agree. But we got to move on, because we got to get to okay. question number five before we run out of time. All right. This one's not so much geopolitics-based, which we know is Matt's specialty. Um, this is more looking at a recent ex uh, explore exploration of your interests, I suppose, we've talked about. And that is remote operation hmm. of devices or just remote operation of operations. So how do you, like, what steps do you take beforehand? How do you best ensure an operation success when the operation is to be carried out remotely? You are not on site. I think the main issue when it comes to remote work is that just not as much work gets done. This is an unfortunate reality that we found during the coronavirus crisis, is that initially remote work had a general uptick in what was the expected output, considering that people who might not have been properly trained or who were codependent on their coworkers were now isolated. In essence, all that remote work actually did was isolate people from their coworkers who actually knew how to do their job with them. And if you require a network of people around you who you can walk over and talk to at the water cooler, and if you no longer have that community, your input starts to decrease in value. And so, unfortunately- Whoa, you're saying that the physical nearness, the physical nearness of a team's position adds a tangible benefit to their output, like work-wise. Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that you should work your employees for 60, 70 hours, because that actually decreases the output and quality of work. But there's a perfect middle area between having a reasonable number of hours worked and getting maximum output for quality and quantity. Mm -hmm. uh, I totally get that. So w when the, that remote aspect is in play, it sounds like your strategy is don't be remote <laughs> yes. where, where you can, you know, be, yeah. be together as a team. But I'm, I'm just going to kind of take what I think was assumed, and that's that communication becomes the number one issue when people are remote, right? I, I would agree. But also, people who become remote generally don't want to go back to being in person. Get used to the, the spice of life, you know, being able to go and play with your dog for 30 minutes at a time. It's a lot of people. I admit that's nice <laughs> to step out of it for a second. Exactly. And a lot of people, especially in federal jobs that went remote, have threatened that if they ever have to go back in person, they will just leave their job and apply for a different remote position. And honestly, I can't blame them. When you've gotten used to that certain quality of life and you don't actually see any tangible benefit in your life for going back to work, outside of a pay increase, why would you go back to work in person? Now, I think at the end of the day, if a lot of employers want to bring people back to the office, they're going to have to provide some incentives. And that's well, they, not a pizza party. They need to make a productive environment because people don't want to go in to sit around or wait for Excel yeah. tasks. I think that what the purpose of the on-site on togetherness, right? Yeah. There's an exponential overlap or exponential growth when people's time overlaps. You know, your time is valuable, my time is valuable, but when we get together and work, 
our time then becomes more valuable than the, more than the sum of our two times, right? Absolutely. So when the whole team gets together, making sure that that time is well used, that's the boss's responsibility. That's the right. ch boss's challenge. And, and speaking from personal experiences, I, I'm sure you could as well, one of the worst things imaginable is trying to look busy when you don't have enough work to do, while simultaneously not wanting to be, wanting to be punished with more work because you're good at your job and your coworkers aren't. Simultaneously not wanting to like waste your own time. Like frankly, the work that I do is, I view it as practice sometimes. Exactly. A lot of rote tasks, it's getting better at this, and once it's good, you automate it, so it's almost no effort, and then go and start iterating on the next task. Right. And not being able to do that, or sitting around and not doing that, is annoying to me. But to me, I think that's a really a fault of the companies and the management environment that many companies actually encourage, in so much as inefficiency of the worker is not the fault of the worker in many cases, but it's the fault of the manager who's incapable of maximizing that person's output. How insane is this? I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that because I don't believe it, because this is totally the environment. Right. But we've now shifted, the, legally, I could say I wasn't working hard enough because the environment which was created for me was not conducive to me working hard. It, but, was, it was conducive to distractions and a waste of time. But there is a place for that if we stop thinking of people simply as, you know, just selfish beings and more so think of them in relation to how we all fit into as cogs in network, right? We're all pieces, and if you don't properly integrate. integrate those cogs, if you don't grease the wheels, if you don't lubricate the cogs, they're going to grind. Mm. And so at some point, it's the fault of who's putting the cogs in the machine and who's taking care of the machine that their input is what is at fault here. That's such a vastly unique perspective from what I've heard on this topic so far. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm glad we got to discuss it. It's, it's I'm, glad, I'm glad that you guys got to hear it as well. And I think that that's going to kind of conclude our Griffin review today. But guys, thank you so much for watching. I've been your chi your chief editor. I know that I'm the editor. Oh no, you're the editor and chief. Editor and chief <laughs> um, of the Griffin review. And with me has been geopolit uh, geopolitical analyst Matt. And uh, I think that there's we're going to have to look into this. It um, bring this advising of the workplace mentality maybe into our into our workflow. Absolutely. Because I think that people want to hear these things that aren't always obvious, but maybe they want to hear them from a third party, and that's what right. you hire an advisor to do. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for having me on the show, Grant. All right. We'll be back next time.